Amen. Well, if, if you've got a Bible there with you, um, if you want to keep that open to Ephesians chapter 1, you'll find that uh, really helpful. As we begin, um, every now and again, I have to sort of bring you a, a cultured sort of reference, just to give you sort of some sort of impression that I don't just sit watching trashy TV in my spare time. I want you to listen to the words here of the poem, uh, The Unknown Citizen by W.H. Alden. To JS slash 07M378, this marble monument is erected by the state. He was found by the Bureau of Statistics to be one against whom there was no official complaint. And all the reports of his conduct agree that in the modern sense of an old-fashioned word, he was a saint. For in everything he did, he served the greatest community, except for the war till the day he retired. He worked in a factory and never got fired, but satisfied his employers, Fudge Motors Inc. Yet he wasn't a scab or odd in his views, for his union reports that he paid his dues. Our report on his union shows it was sound, and our social psychology workers found that he was popular with his mates and liked to drink. The press are convinced that he bought a paper every day and that his reactions to advertisements were normal in every way. Policies taken out in his name prove that he was fully insured, and his health card shows he was once in hospital but left it cured. Both producers' research and high-grade living declare he was fully sensible to the advantages of the installment plan and had everything necessary to the modern man, a phonograph, a radio, a car, and a frigid air. Our researchers into public opinion are content that he held the proper opinions for the time of year. When there was peace, he was for peace. When there was war, he went. He was married and added five children to the population, which our eugenist says was the right number for a parent of his generation. And our teachers report that he never interfered with their ed education. Was he free? Was he happy? The question is absurd. Had anything been wrong, we should certainly have heard. The poem parodies and ridicules the standards by which one's life is evaluated. So what does it mean then? Because this surely is the question that the poet is asking really is, what does it mean to be truly alive? What does it look like to live a, a life that is worth the living? What are we to live for? And how do we come to find that life? Paul's letter to the Ephesians answers the question of what it is to really live. What it is to really live as a man, as a woman of God. What it is to live as a child of God and as a part of the people of God. It's an amazing book. Uh, just one person quoting his uh, appreciation for it. Uh, John Mackay, former principal of Princeton Seminary, says, To this book I owe my life, for in it I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I'd been quickened. I was really alive. In a world in which many actually have a growing sense in their life that they're not really living. Looking for a way to find a sense of purpose and fulfillment, Paul shows us we find life in Christ. In the gospel, we're called from death into new life. We're brought together as a new people, as the church. And we find that all of life is reshaped in the light of the gospel. And so this book shows us what it means to be 
the people of God in all of life. And so that's the title we have for this series together. And so we'll begin to answer, what does it mean, what does it look like to be the people of God? This is a church here in Ephesus that has done great things. But they face the risk that it may fail to do lasting things. This is a church in a city that doesn't know Jesus, that in many ways doesn't want to know Jesus, and in still others has every incentive not to get to know Jesus, and yet has seen God work miraculously in it. First, we see in these first couple of verses here in this introduction from Paul here, that the church is a people birthed through Christ. And so the question we might ask of ourselves as we reflect on these couple of verses here is, do you know how you got here? I wonder if you uh, are a woman and you've given birth, whether you remember that, whether you remember that moment or those moments or if you're a husband, whether you remember those moments with your wife, or even just as family, you remember those moments as your loved one has, has gone and given birth in that new child. It's a ridiculous question, isn't it? Of course you do. It's so momentous. It's so great. It's so traumatic. Of course you remember. You don't need anybody to remind you about it. You, you know all too well the wonder and the awe of that moment. course you remember and yet somehow for us as believers we're so prone to forget our birth story and so Paul much of his focus here in this first half of this first chapter is to remind us of our birth story here you yourself may remember perhaps if already a believer what it meant or what it felt like in those moments that growing sense of being born again to Christ but not only do you have that story as an individual but the church is not just some kind of collection of individuals stitched together this is from the very beginning a people brought together as one organism and the church itself has a birth story we're not just a collection of individuals stitched together we're a connected organism and here we get some of that story here and there's two miracles that occur in it even just in these two verses of introduction here look with me to verse one here the first miracle we see here paul an apostle of christ by the will of god paul is a, a messenger of jesus that's literally what the word apostle there means a messenger of jesus under and with his authority this is a miracle. This is nothing short of a miracle. We get something of Paul's story um, through a number of the New Testament documents. We hear from Paul's own words of his upbringing in Philippians 3, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a tr the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, one who's been brought up within the Jewish faith. He reflects on himself again, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
we start to hear of some of Paul's uh, actions and interventions in this in Acts. In Acts chapter 7, we read that as uh, people are about to martyr Stephen, David was talking uh, to us about that the other week, the witnesses laid down the garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We later hear at the beginning of chapter 8 that Saul approved Stephen's execution. We hear of him imprisoning believers. Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And we read that not only was Paul doing this in Jerusalem, but this was going further afield. In the beginning of Acts chapter 9, still uh, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples, seeking to bring any followers of the way in Damascus to prison in Jerusalem. And then we read of Paul's conversion. In Acts chapter 9, light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise up and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. It's a complete miracle. Notice in Paul's conversion as well, it's, there's, there's no element for Paul here of having chosen to follow Jesus it's a light flashes, blinds him, throws him off his horse and tells him, you're going to the city to go and hear what else to do. And in fact, we hear later as, as one of the people on the scene that Jesus uh, uses uh, to bring uh, Saul into this new faith. Uh, he's wondering what on earth is going on. And, and God says, uh, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's, there's the strap line. There's the selling point. <laughs> I must show him how much he will now suffer for my name. It's a miracle that Paul, the messenger, has come to faith. But secondly, it's the miracle that this church has been born in Ephesus. We read that this letter is to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Ephesus was an incredibly prominent city at the time, capital of the Roman province of Asia, uh, and a busy commercial port as well. But the thing it was most known for was its temple to Artemis or to Diana. In fact, uh, it, she was known as a goddess, as Artemis of the Ephesians. And in the, the temple had several different constructions. And in its third construction, uh, the temple at Ephesus there was one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. This is a place, uh, I said to you there at the beginning, that there's every incentive not to embrace the gospel of Jesus. Because economically, this is a city that thrives upon the business of the temple of Artemis. Okay, a modern comparison might be somewhere like Las Vegas. For Las Vegas to suddenly become uh, anti-gambling in its sort of legislation would be to kill the city. It's what it exists for. It's what employs most of the people there and all of the spin-off industries. Every incentive for the message of Jesus not to be responded to, and yet here we've seen an amazing work of God in a church being built there. We read in chapter 18 of Paul's journey to Ephesus, uh, happening just as he's on his way to Corinth then. As he's at Corinth, he says, from now on, I'll, I'll only go to the Gentiles. It doesn't go well. Paul's normal MO, his normal modus operandi of, of, of reaching out is to first speak to Jewish people, 
and, and then go beyond that. But here it doesn't go that well at all, actually. And so he says, well, from now on, I'll only go to the Gentiles. And yet there's something about Paul that can't help himself but to bring the gospel wherever it's needed. We later read in Acts chapter 18, verse 19, he came to Ephesus and left them, Priscilla and Aquila there, but he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He can't keep himself away. He's asked to stay, but he declines and says, well, I may return to you if, if God wills. Always the best way to end, by the way. Believers are gathering in Ephesus as Apollos now is preaching among them. We read of this later on in chapter 18, helped by Priscilla and Aquila. And now in the next chapter 19, Paul returns. He returns actually only on his way to somewhere else again. And it tells us in the text, and it happened. In much the same way that we read in Ruth as we thought about that story, and it happened that Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz. And it happened that Paul ended up back in Ephesus. And actually beginning with only 12 men, he spends three months uh, preaching and reasoning in the synagogues, which seems to bear very little fruit. And as a result, goes for two years into the public hall, and will say, as a result of this outreach, that only happened because he by chance wound up in Ephesus on the road to somewhere else. And only ended up in the public hall because actually reaching out to the Jews where he thought the fruit would maybe first come didn't work. All the residents of Asia heard about Jesus as a result. Don't undervalue those things that seem to just happen in your life. And when we say that, when we say it just sort of happened, what does that really mean? I, well, I'll tell you what it normally means to me, and I'm pretty sure it's the same for you too, is it didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. It didn't go to my plan. That's what I mean when I say it just happened is I had this plan of how things were going to work out, and it didn't quite work out like that. Don't undervalue those things. That stopgap job, that backup university, that starter home neighborhood, don't undervalue those things where you seem to just happen to be there. But secondly, failure is not to be something that you just sort of tolerate, an annoyance of life, that sometimes there are these seasons, there are these moments, there are these jobs and places that we want that seem to be just failure. And we just sort of tolerate it and kind of hide it because it's a bit embarrassing. We don't want to tell people about the lowlights of our life. Actually, would Paul have wound up in the city hall if things had not gone so badly before? You know, if he had seen just, you know, a medium level of response, do you think that he might have just stayed in the synagogue and seen no need actually to go out to the city hall and people who would have responded to the gospel would have never heard it in the first place? Actually, sometimes failure is really directly linked to fruitfulness in other seasons, isn't it? And we see the gospel takes such root in Ephesus that it actually changes the very economy. You can read of that in Acts chapter 19 so that they can't even make a profit on sin anymore. People are burning their, their occult books and, and the idol makers are saying, how are we supposed to make a living now? Nobody is wanting to buy any of our goods. This city is propped up on this uh, religion and, and now we can't make money on it. It changes the very fabric of the society. And yet, for all this greatness, for all these great moments and great events, it ends very quickly here in a violent kind of counter-reaction. 
And they're warned several times into the book of Acts here that false teachers are coming. And for all of the great achievements, it may all come to nothing if they don't keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. In fact, the last sad warning and thing we ever hear about the church at Ephesus before it finally did fizzle out, as great as the moments it had, was a warning in Revelation 2 that for all the great work, they were at risk of losing their first love. And for all the great things they might attempt to do, if they're not done in love for Jesus, they're not worth anything at all. There are two miracles here already just in that introduction, that Paul is the messenger for them and that a church has grown up in Ephesus. Do you know that this morning, that even for us here, there's two miracles this morning. There's one, a miracle that we meet as a church still. There's a miracle that I'm here, the one talking to you this morning. I can tell you now, if you could have seen me in in my sort of... uh, formative years I would be the last person you'd expect to be here you know I grew up in a Christian home and everything about that pushed me away from Christianity pushed me away from I saw no need for Jesus whatsoever and quite frankly and it's embarrassing to say it now but would have said I'm too intelligent I mean nothing actually about my life now if you spent enough time around me would would convince you that I was too intelligent for Christianity at all but you know in my head at the time as a, as a teenager, I was way too intelligent for this. I went to a school that had no time for spirituality in any form. No interest. We, we were too good for that. that. That was for naive people who didn't wind up here. Not, not us. Not the kind of people who are going to go and shape the culture now into the future. And no time for it whatsoever. I got carted off to a youth camp that I didn't want to go to. I protested profusely. I faked sleeping on the bus journey because I didn't want to talk to anyone. You know, the, you know what the worst thing of all is as a non-Christian is you gradually getting drawn a bit in, into the community is when you see people you want to hate but you can't. That's the worst thing about it. It's, you just see these people who are actually just really nice. Everything within me wants to kind of undermine everything they're about but uh, I just can't. Didn't want to be there. Not interested. Don't remember what the guy was preaching about. I don't imagine it left any particular impression upon me. But I can identify with Paul of having that moment of God speaking and that being enough of him saying, stop running. And that being enough, they're not being a choice because if you'd have asked me even a nanosecond before it happened, nuh-uh. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be like any of these people at all. I'm here enduring this. And then... God speaks and intervenes. Paul reflects on his own life in Galatians 1, verse 15 here. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, and was in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I became a Christian really in a very sudden moment. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life to that point, but I knew the one thing I didn't want to do. There was one thing of all others I was certain on, and that was, I am not wasting my life as a minister like I've watched my dad do. And that was nothing against him. But I just thought, what, what an utterly fruitless sort of pattern of life. I, I don't want to waste my life. I want to make money. I want to be somebody. And of course, what do you think he did? Reading that verse the next day afterwards, still somewhat confused and shaken, thought, oh, okay. 
This is something he does to a lot of people then, perhaps. There are always two miracles that are going on in any church. The fact that we very exist together and the person before you attempting to bring God's word before you. And for each one of us too, we might reflect on our journeys. I think it's an absolute miracle that we're here. We're a people birthed through Christ. Secondly, we see here, we're a people blessed in Christ. And the question I have for us here is, do you know what it is that you have? To bring the tone down uh, somewhat from my sort of quite cultured uh, poem at the beginning, I'm going to have to spell out the title of this program because for those who are listening in just on the phone line, there's a real danger of getting lost in translation and this being very awkward. Uh, there's a great program I like watching just to kind of, you don't have to think at all. It is called P-A-W-N Stars. Born as in secondhand stuff. Um, and it's great. So it's, it's this shop in Las Vegas where people come in with, uh, obviously, not just your run-of-the-mill bric-a-brac that you used to have in the Blue Peter tabletop sales. Stuff that really is just like people don't want to go to the tip, so they bring it to you to attempt to sell. And they, you have to pretend that that was a great favor. Oh, thank you so much, stuff. But one of the interesting things is sometimes you see people come in with stuff, they have no idea what it is that they have. It's like Antiques Roadshow, but like, you know, Vegas version. Uh, so there was a lady who came in with a set of uh, photographs of some uh, Native Americans. And she just wanted sort of $50 for the set. They just thought, oh, they kind of look interesting. Someone might be interested in these, but I, I kind of want to clear out some space. And didn't realize that the, these were photographs by a really famous photographer, or so, I'm, so I read. Uh, and they were worth nearly $20,000. Would have been happy to have just got 50 as she come in. And then you imagine actually $20,000 at the end of it. Or a guy who rummaging through his attic found what turned out to be uh, a Spanish gold bar from like the 16th century which was worth about uh, $50,000 as it turned out and uh, another lady who brings in this sort of ugly looking spider brooch uh, kind of just looks like I don't know some fan of Spider-Man kind of crafted it in their spare time. Turns out to be a Fabergé uh, spider brooch, which is worth upwards of £80,000. It's amazing sometimes just seeing those people who don't realise what it is that they have. And sometimes we don't realise all that it is that we have as believers. And Paul wants to remind us here of all that we have. And there's an interesting thing here that we'll see throughout the course of Ephesians, but actually all of Paul's writings is in terms of his pastoral approach. Paul is never writing as a sort of Christian how-to. You know, here's the things you should do. Here's the things you shouldn't do. Here's the places you should go. Here's the places you shouldn't go. Here's the things you should say. Here's the things you shouldn't say. Here's what it is to be a Christian. Here's your guide, and you can just sort of look it up like an encyclopedia whenever you're a little bit lost. Paul always goes to a place of first telling people everything that they have in the gospel. So he has people who are taking out lawsuits against each other in the church at Corinth. What does he do? He doesn't just go straight away to stop being so stupid and throw this out. The place he goes to is, here's what you once were. You were once liars, slanderers, evil, adulterers, and all, all of these things. This is what you once were. And now, in Christ, you're forgiven. You're free. You made new, you new people together. His place is to go, here's what the gospel says that you are. Here's what Jesus has done for you. And so now 
live out in light of all that Jesus has done for you. And this is what he's doing for us here. This is why this might feel kind of like a lot of technical things that Paul kind of stitches together here. But the purpose and the point is, here is all that God has done for you in Christ. So, now, as a church, live this out together. Not do this, 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 and this, but here's who you are. Here's who we're to be. He tells us here, we're blessed Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places here. Blessed, that is, praised. Let God be praised. Let him be spoken well of. For he is blessed. And now it's a different kind of blessing. It's talking about him having given us everything that is good, everything that is beneficial in Christ with every spiritual blessing or literal gift in the heavenly places and now Paul will give us 10 specific examples of what he's talking about he's not going to leave us in any doubt here as to what it is that we're to be uh, praising him for and what it is that we're blessed by him in and note that all of these gifts here are found in Jesus these are gifts that are not just from Jesus but they come from who he is they're in him so that Jesus himself is the gift of the gospel Firstly, he chooses us here, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before you ever did anything. There's no accidents, there's no unwanted children. We're all chosen. How do you become part of this? How do you become part of God's people? How do you come to receive all these blessings in Christ? Well, not by your choice but by God choosing you. He chose us. Secondly, he set us apart. Verse 4 here, that we should be holy and blameless. Uh, the way is, is set apart for noble use, and I've used it before, but the analogy is of like the best china that you might have had in your house growing up. The stuff that's set apart just for when the really important people come over. You're set apart for noble use. You're set apart for good use before him. Thirdly, you're adopted in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. The gift here, by the way, is adoption, not predestination. You get that right? The predestination is how that is adoption. And yet, maybe there's a question there, isn't there? How can God preemptively, before I've done anything, having chosen and predestined certain people to be adopted as his children, then by definition, some people not. How can that be in love? Because it tells us here that in love he's done that. Well, it's the only way that he can, isn't it? If becoming his child is, is based in any way on merit, I fall woefully short. It's just not, it's not only that I fall short, it's not possible that I ever can attain to it. I just don't have the capability. It's not possible. I would never make the cut. You know, the scandal here is actually that God adopts anyone. Why would he adopt anyone? It would make much more sense in a way to be done with everyone, wouldn't it, than to save anyone in his love, apart from our works, apart from all that we do, apart from our inability. He chooses us and adopts us, sets us apart. Fourthly, we receive his grace here verse 6 we get his grace with which he's blessed 
or uh, literally it's the, the grace with which he's graced us. The grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. It's not only that we don't receive God's judgment, though that happens too, and that's amazing, but it's that we receive his favor from him. Sixth, we're redeemed. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We're saved from slavery to sin. My problem is not only that I fall short of the mark that it takes in order uh, to be saved so that it can't ever be determined uh, upon my performance, but my, my problem is that I'm actually trapped in a vicious spiral in which I can never actually get myself out of. Because my problem is that I have free will, but my free will isn't freed. My free will that means I make my own decisions genuinely because I want to actually is, is limited by the fact that it's not righteous. So that all I really wind up doing is picking my poison, but I find myself never able to escape it without the work of Christ before me. I find myself, my freedom, actually being the very thing that ensnares me. That I find myself unable to choose the thing that would bring me life. But in Christ, we have redemption from that slavery to sin. We find freedom from our own inability. Isn't that one of the most embarrassing and hard things to accept? That not just when I do something that's wrong, but it's the reality I have to confront that I did it because I wanted to. I can try to excuse it. I can try to dress it up in the way I was brought up, that it's the environment around me, that it's the culture around me. And some of that may be true to a point, but there's a reality underneath all of that that I did it because I wanted to. Shared it with you before. Is the, the, the moment of redemption in the series Breaking Bad is like an anti-redemption. If you've never seen it, it's, it's an amazing series. It's very dark, but it, it's amazing series. You see this guy go from meek, mild, pretty kind of repressed high school teacher to drug roared. And you see that develop over time. And he, all the way along, he's told himself and he's told everyone else, I'm doing this for the family. Because when I die, I don't want to leave this huge debt that none of you can ever pay for my treatment. And you're just kind of resenting me because I've just left you in a worse place. I'm doing this for you. Until a final moment where for the first time, Walter White is honest and says, and his wife expects that she's gonna get the same speech. And she said, if you tell me one more time that you did this for the family, and he says, no, I did it for me. And it's a sort of anti-redemption because in a way you feel like for the first time he's been honest. And yet it's not a redemption either because it's a, I did it for me, and I'm not really saying sorry. This is who I am. But Jesus has redeemed us. Redeemed us from that very part of us that does it for us. Sickly, redemption, um, but we're also forgiven here. We receive forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiven of all of our sins against a holy God. Every sin that's an accusation towards God, it's not just about the action, it's about the accusation within that action. It's about the accusation that God somehow isn't enough. That somehow God hasn't given me all that I need. 
that somehow in some way God isn't good enough in and of himself to satisfy my longings. I need something else beyond him and outside of him. That somehow he's holding out something good from me and in some way holding me back from something, some part of life that really actually would be good. We're forgiven. But also he brings us revelation. He reveals his plans to us. He, verse 9 here, he's making known to us the mystery of his will. By God's grace, he actually lets us in on his plans and his purposes. We're granted an inheritance here. In him we've obtained an inheritance, verse 11. Notice how that is past tense as well. You've already obtained it. It's not just something to come into the future. It's actually something you're receiving now. We're cut into the inheritance as full children. Nine, we're celebrated. Verse 12 here, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. For his pride and joy. Just like you may take pride and joy in your children. Or your nieces and nephews. We're celebrated. And tenthly, we're given this deposit. Look at verses 13 to 14 there with me. That we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a down payment. It's the word there. The presence and the work of the Holy Spirit within us proves our identity. And is a deposit of all that is to come into the future too. And why does God do this? As we close this section here. Why does he do this? Three times we're given two different purposes for all of these things with which he blesses us. In verses 5, 9, and 11, we're told of one purpose, according to the purpose of his will. Why does he do it that way? Because he wants to do it that way. There's a fundamentally unequal relationship between ourselves and God. And the sense that the best answer that you're going to be given, the right answer, the only answer you actually need, you don't need the information fully of why he does it like that. All you need to know is that he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, because that's who he is. This is the purpose of his will. That's the first reason why he does what he does we're given here. But the second one in verses 5, 12, and 14 is to the praise of his glorious grace firstly he does what he does because he can do whatever he wants to do surely that's the way in which God reveals himself to Moses isn't it I am who I am it, when you look at the footnote in that passage in Exodus as well you'll notice it will say could also be translated I will be who I will be it's another way of saying I will do whatever I want I will be whoever I will be and you will not be able to wrap your mind around me it isn't for you to even try. But secondly, to the praise of his glorious grace, for his praise, for his renown. It's a fundamentally unequal relationship. We're not partners with him, and he completely and utterly outgives us. Look at all those things we're blessed with in Christ. And then finally here, we see that we are a people as a church built up by and for Christ. And the question, I think, for us to reflect on is, do you know what to ask for? Um, one of the things that we have almost immediately after Christmas um, and birthdays is that our kids begin working on their list for the next year. And that list will change on a sometimes even daily basis. 
so that I regularly just have to say to them, look, I'm, you know, I'm just going to check in with you like a month before your birthday because I know that you'll, you'll keep changing, you'll keep finding something that you want and we'll, we'll just talk about this nearer the time. They don't know what to ask for. And so often I wonder whether we really know what to ask for. And we see here in Paul's prayer in verses 15 to 23 here, him praying big. And we see something of what we might want to be asking for from God ourselves. What does growth look like for the church, for God's people? How do we measure it? Do we measure it through number of programs and success through that? Do we measure it through our power or influence or level of attendance or our buildings or staff size? Well, we get something of an insight to what we should measure growth by here. For this reason, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Paul wants to be really clear now why it is he's happy with them, what it is he's happy with amongst them. And now we get this here, verse 15. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. There's the two metrics. The two metrics for growth and fruitfulness and faithfulness of the church, the people of God, is not programs, power, influence, attendance, buildings, staff. It is faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward the saints. Faith and trust in all that God has done in Jesus and love toward one another. And the word there is agape, it's the same love that God shows towards us. It's that we become imitators of God in our love toward one another. The metric of true greatness, real growth, is sin in faith and trust in Jesus and all he's done and increasing in loving one another as he's loved us. For all the greatness of some of the events that had happened in Ephesus, it's not that that Paul gives thanks for. Note that. It's not that that Paul is excited about. It's your faith and your love for one another. And so he's remembering them in his prayers. He says, but what does he ask for for them? So that we might know what to ask for for us. What could he have prayed for? Well, he could have prayed for all manner of things, couldn't he? He could have prayed for their continuing growth uh, numerically and otherwise. He could have prayed for their protection from opposition within the city, from the pagan temples that we've already re can read about in Acts chapter 19. He could have prayed for more influence for them uh, throughout the city. But of all the things that he could ask for, all the things that they could possibly need, he asks for two kinds of wisdom. Note that here in verse 17 and 18. He asks for two kinds of wisdom of all the things he could ask for. And think of all the things that he just like, leaves unsaid. He asks for two kinds of wisdom. Firstly, a kind of head wisdom, verse 17 here, that they'd have a spirit of wisdom uh, and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And secondly, that they'd have a kind of heart revelation here, verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. You know, there's something slightly different sometimes, isn't there, to, to believe and to feel in our heart than to simply just know in our head. And so what information does this sort of transformational revelation, this wisdom that Paul asks for, this spirit of wisdom, this having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, well, with what? What information would do that? What, what do I need to know to grow? It's the question for us, isn't it? What do I need to know to grow? What do we need to know to grow as a church together? He gives us three things here. Firstly, his promise. Look at verse 18 there. The hope 
to which he's called you. He asks that they'll have this wisdom, both in their head and their heart, of the hope to which God has called them. And Paul's comprehensively covered that for us, isn't he, in those verses 3 to 14. We've got those 10 things. Secondly, it's about his resources. Verse 18 there continues. That you'd know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That you would know his endless resources. And thirdly, his capability. Verse 19 here tells us the, the immeasurable greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of his power and the riches of his glorious inheritance. That is, his endless resources and his boundless power. And then in these final few verses here, Paul paints a picture for us of what this looks like. And this is all so grand, so awesome. Where do we find the confidence for ourselves in everyday life, Monday afternoon, which is fast upcoming, reality when you're sat there and it's been a tough day at work, where you're frustrated, where people have let you down, where you've not met your expectations, other people haven't met their expectations, where family life is stressful and frayed. Where do we find the confidence that all of this is really true and really means something for my everyday life? We find it all in Jesus. Look at how he paints all of this, the immeasurable greatness of his power and the working of his great might in Jesus. This is the example that we're pointed back to. We're pointed back to the cross. We're pointed back to the cross that was the basis, uh, you know, last week of David then speaking of Jesus' ascension as well, of our confidence to go out and to share the good news. We see this in Jesus, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We see it all in Jesus. We're again pointed to look to him to find confidence for ourselves. The one who is above all rule and authority, the one who has all things under his feet, the one who is head over all things. What would you ask if you remembered that? And then we have this wonderful ending here, which in some ways will lead into the rest of these following chapters. Uh, Paul will flesh this out, what it might look like to be this, that we are the church, his body, the fullness of him. The church now, not the temple, is the place in which God's presence and work is seen on earth. The fullness of him. What he wants for you for us, for me, is to be built up in Christ. To be built up for him. To be his people for his glory. And the rest of the book is going to unpack this for us. So as we end, how do we find what it means to be truly alive? Well, we find life in Christ alone. What is different about life in Christ? What are the perks? What is actually better? Why would you want to root your life in Christ? Well, we're given those 10 blessings, aren't we? That he's chosen you. He's set you apart. He's adopted you. 
He's shown his grace to you. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's revealed himself to you. He's given you an inheritance. You're a celebrated child, and he's given you a deposit, his spirit. So how do we become part of God's people and share in this real life? He reveals his son to us. We put our faith in him and we take hold of it. But he reveals himself to us. He chooses us so that we may choose him. And so this morning, if you've not come to that place yet in your life, then maybe this will be the moment for you to really think, well, what am I going to do with this? Of all that I've heard, of all that Jesus is, of all that he's doing, well, then will I take hold of it? Or will you simply flirt with it at the edges? How do we find motivation to live as the people of God in all of life? Well, we look to all that God has given us. If God has done all of this for us in Christ, then I want to spend myself and my whole life on being his, on being about his purposes, on being built up for him and in him. And to see him return and fulfill his purposes here on earth as in heaven. Let me pray for us and then we will uh, sing a closing song together. Father, I thank you this morning for your wonderful grace and love and favor that you've lavished upon us. Lord, in so many ways these verses are so grand, so big, so awesome. It's difficult to quite wrap our minds and our hearts around them. That this is the gravity, this is the magnitude of, of all that you have done for us. Lord, we thank you this morning that this is all done apart from our performance. There is no way that we could possibly earn or deserve any of this. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning that for each one of us, whatever our story has been, wherever we've come from, whatever that's looked like for us in our life, you have chosen us. You have adopted us. Apart from anything that we've ever done, before we ever even did anything, to be set apart even from birth. What an amazing and an awesome thing. Lord, help us, forgive us. In, in everyday life, it's so easy to be so distracted by so many things. Life gets loud and it's easy to listen to so much other noise outside of all that you've done. Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning, wherever we are and whatever place we're sort of at in life this morning, that you would speak to us where we are, that you would reveal your son for us. Lord, for those who maybe don't know you yet in that way, maybe not have that moment of actually coming to faith and coming to um, put their whole trust and faith and life in you, that you would reveal your son to us now. Lord, I thank you so much that this morning. I know for myself and I know for countless others will have similar stories of saying, you know what, I'm so thankful that this morning we can pray big, that you would do that. Not just that you might prompt people to, you know, kind of, 
decide to let you into their life, but that, Lord, you'll do whatever you want to do because that's what you're about, that you're big enough to do what you want, when you want, whether we want that or not. Father, I thank you that you have freely bent and changed and shaped our wills to want to follow you. Father, I thank you that in you choosing us and sending your Spirit's work to work within our hearts, to soften our hearts, to change our hearts, to kill off the old person that we are and to make us new, that you help us to actually to choose you in a way that we never could before. And so this morning, for those who may not know you in that way yet, I thank you that we can pray this morning and I will pray that you would reveal your Son to them this morning. And Lord, for those of us who know you and are following you and are looking for motivation and hope and confidence to continue walking in the faith and continue walking that out in family and in work and school and university and amongst friends and in our neighborhoods, draw us back again this morning to the wondrous grace with which you've blessed us to find confidence and hope and security in you. That, as David was saying last week, that, you know, we would be able to relax in being your people and in being your witnesses, knowing that you have everything in hand. You have everything in hand. We have nothing to fear. We have everything to gain. We know how things end and we know the ending is glorious. So, Father, help us to have that confidence in you and all you're doing, and confidence in all that you're doing in us, where you've placed us, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, in our homes, amongst our friends and family, that you are doing your work through us. And so help us, Lord, to live life in light of all that you've done for us, to have faith in you and to love one another as you've loved us. Amen. We're going to sing a closing song together.